Uh, we're starting a series today, and if you've picked up the program, well done, Gary. Uh, if you've picked up the program, uh, then you will see that we're following consecutively in our home groups and indeed weaving this into the midweek uh, prayer, prayer meeting as well. Uh, so we ask the question, what is the square mile? Uh, this is what we're going to pursue. And uh, following the reading that we've had just now, we'll base some of the sermon on that and open it up wa much wider. Well, it's, it's an acronym and that should come up in front of you uh, straight away. Uh, square mile, there it is. Mercy, influence, life, discipleship, evangelism. This morning we're looking at mercy. And then we'll try to break this down um, each uh, Sunday in terms of uh, what, how this applies to us. Um, so today the subheading uh, is uh, demonstrating God's compassion to the poor. Um, we are promoting this booklet. Um, and the DVD is also linked to the home group. If you're not linked to a home group, um, this is a good time to come in uh, and uh, follow consecutively um, the, the DVD as it interviews various people and indeed then as you answer the questions in the book. Um, so here's some folk there. Right, that's the square mile and um, that's the way that we're going for the next couple of weeks. One question to ask, and it's this. Would anyone in our community notice if our church ceased to exist? Immediately, we go back to the children's talk, think church, think people. There was a little chapel when I came here 30 years ago, the outskirts of Oakley, and it was pulled down, and lots of people noticed, because it was a building. But if a Christian moved from the village, how much would people notice if he or she were not there? Notice in a Christian way, in a godly way, in terms of who they are and their influence. Think church think people. Would anyone in our community, when we think of us coming here, well, immediately they'd notice with the parking, wouldn't they? That's, that's for sure. And breathe a sigh of relief. Um, I would hope there is a resounding yes that people would notice. People would notice. One of the things that we've talked about openly in our church um, members meeting is this that uh, for better for worse and depends on your perspective we've moved from this church being in the community now to the community being in the church and there are endless points of reference for people to cross over to come to know Jesus Christ and be part of a worshipping community We've moved from being open one day a week to, if you look, just look at the notice sheet, to being seven days a week. I know that some of you expressed to me your sense of irritation with that. Keep moving the chairs. Some people don't know how to behave in church. Um, but think church, think people. And it doesn't matter how long we are, we're used to church culture. 
So this is our square mile. This is where we live and relate. I would hope that we keep, uh, well, two things in perspective. The first we've been looking, the second rather, we've been looking at quite a lot. Uh, the first is this. Here's just a simple illustration. You and I must turn our mirrors into windows. Some evangelicals are very good, and rightly so, at looking at ourselves. My prayer life. My influence in the community. The credibility of my faith with my children, with my colleagues. Those are good and laudable things. My involvement in church life. We may, for some, need more. I'm sorry to say for others are over-churched and need less. Turning our mirrors into windows is this. There, there comes a time we have to stop looking at ourselves and look out into a world of great need. And with what Christ has done for us, take his grace into ungracious situations. It's always the exercise that we must do. Turn our mirrors into windows. And the second one, as we've been emphasizing, think church, think people. Stop thinking building. We are going to, God willing, make uh, um, an extension to this building. Buildings are good servants. But they are very bad masters if we think this is where God lives and this is the only time I can speak to him. So we come to the issue of mercy. Mercy. Demonstrating God's compassion for the poor and the helpless. And we don't need to go to Ethiopia. Let's try to put it in two ways for the moment then. First, there is obvious poverty. When I, Hand and I were in Ethiopia, we saw grinding poverty. No education, no clean water, no medical assistance. Very little in terms of resources, of, of food and diet. Then it was less than a dollar a day. And with the credit crunch, much less now. Now it's very humbling to go to a country like that. That's obvious. That's poverty in your face wherever you go. That's obvious. And for a different reason. If you take Zimbabwe, it was the breadbasket of Africa, that part of Africa, now has been ravaged by injustice and corruption and nepotism. Zimbabwe produce money that is no money at all, ravaged by corruption. And that's poverty, in-your-face poverty. But there is less obvious Poverty. Sometimes, I don't know if, if you've heard it said, somebody might be talking about somebody and uh, they say, you know, I love them very much, but he or she is a poor soul. Is a poor soul. Sense of being rather pitiful. Might be a temperamental thing. Might be that people feel that life has been unfair to them. And they have a chip on their shoulder. And they're a poor soul. They are emotionally impoverished, though financially well off. 
Somebody once said this, some people are so poor, they only have money. Now in the West, we don't see poverty like that. Some people are so poor, they only have money. And they're impoverished of authentic relationship. So when we think then of mercy to the poor, you might think socially, you might think politically, you might think spiritually. But we need to think holistically in the total sense of that. So coming back to mercy, and it's been the theme of, as you will have noticed, uh, in our praying and in our singing of the hymns and songs that we've had this morning. Now to fully grasp this word, mercy, what we need to do is to open it out a bit. And we need a group of overlapping linguistic circles. And I'm indebted to Liz, who, who has done this for me. I sent the PowerPoint and then she's uh, done a, a chain. So if that comes up in the... Here we are. Here, let's start with the first. Kindness. Kindness. Be kind to one another, says the Apostle Paul. Tender-hearted. Forgive one another as Christ forgave you. You treat people as Christ treated you. That's what it means for mercy. And if today you are unkind in what you say to your fellow believer or member of your family, then before you leave, be sure you'll repent and ask God to forgive you and then go and see that person. Kindness. And then, merciful. Do justly. Love mercy. How many of us actually love extending forgiveness to other people? First time I sang this song from Micah chapter 6, 8, and it's word perfect in in the prophecy. I was going with an Elim evangelist to a gypsy camp in a place place called Pontlanfraith, outside Newport. And I had just become a Christian, a matter of two months. And he said to me, as we were driving in the car, I want to teach you a song. I was more concerned with his driving, I have to confess, that we were singing this song. He said, because when we get to the gypsy camp, we are going to sing a duet. In those days, they didn't ask you. They told you. And you just did it. And I've remembered it ever since. He's shown you a man what's good. What does the Lord require of you? Do justly. Love mercy. Love mercy. We're good at asking for justice. We're not so good at issuing mercy, are we? Walk humbly. Walk humbly with our God. Goodness. When the apostles wanted to talk about Jesus in the growth of the church, in the book of Acts, they described him like this. He was a good man. He went around doing good. Their example of being filled with the Holy Spirit was people who bring goodness into our lives. And the next one, love. Actually, it literally means family love from the womb. The, 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 very, the very people who bring the most joy and the most sorrow and heartache sometimes. Yet it's family. And we, we put up with things in family that we wouldn't anywhere else. It's family love. And then to complete this um, chain... So it's not just one word. These are not random. They're woven together to make a chain which, which tells us about mercy. And that is grace. 
It's the word that uh, if mercy was used more in the Old Testament, grace was used more in the New. They both have slight differences which we will think about in a moment. So there it is. That's what we're thinking about. Kindness, merciful, goodness, family love, grace. I think it was the theologian um, Bart uh, that said, um, this personal God has a heart. This personal God has a heart. Love, mercy. Walk humbly. Be compassionate. You are godlike. You are like your creator and your redeemer. And you're in step with him and his heart. And this God is not impressed at all by outward forms of religion. Look in Isaiah 58. Just see this as, as it comes before us. True fasting, not false fasting. Fast, the secret of fasting, if you like, is fasting in secret. Not showing everybody, like the scribes and Pharisees, how spiritual you are. How sacrificial. And being heavy and giving people a hard time. Shout, this is Isaiah 58 verse 1. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. And this is what people say. This is their religion. And they are miffed now when they speak like this. Why have we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it? The whole point of their fasting is that people see it. They want to impress people, but God isn't impressed. And why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? They become proud of their humility. It's, a, it's, it's an oxymoron, isn't it? You, you can't, but you can, humanly speaking. And look at verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is that it? Is that the essence of our religion? Is it only for bowing one's heads? Think of all the formal religions of the world, not just Judaism or Christianity. Is that all it's about? And then verse 6. Is not the, this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of, of, of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. That's fasting that I'm into, God says. That has, that has a tangible result. That does things. It is not a kingdom of words. It's a kingdom of power and action. Can I put it like this then? Even as, as, as evangelicals, if my religious duties, my service, my involvement, however great or little, is to please me or to draw attention to what I am doing and it's my kudos, then it is not acceptable to God, even though I might be doing good things. I cannot earn God's blessing. 
I cannot buy favor. He is not impressed with that. I have failed. True service leads to humility and mercy. And you see in Isaiah 58 and, and verse 8. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. I know many of you have bought the, the book by uh, uh, Yancey. What's so amazing about grace? Let me read to you his introduction. This, this book, that's, I think, is over a million copies been sold. Um, and this is how he begins the book. Now, we're thinking about mercy and its human impact upon people in different situations. He says this, page one, what's so amazing about grace? A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. She sobs and te with tears and she tells me she'd been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than herself earning all night. She had to do it, she said, to support her drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing the sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report child abuse cases. I had no idea what to say to this woman. Finally, I asked if she'd ever thought of going to a church, any church. I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church? She said, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. And then, that's his introduction to what's so amazing about grace. And he goes on to say this. What struck me about this woman was this. That women much like her, like this prostitute, fled toward Jesus. Not from him. The worse person felt, the worse the person felt about herself, the more likely she was to take refuge to Jesus. And then he poses the question, has the church lost its gift? Has the church lost that gift of grace? In other words, no matter what we say, actually, church is for nice people, usually middle class and well-educated. What's so amazing about grace or mercy as it impacts our lives? Because on to say this, many people say, he, he, he pursues the word grace, for instance. He says, many people say grace before meals, and that's good. We say we are grateful for someone's kindness, and that's right. We are gratified by good news. We are congratulated when successful. Gracious in hosting friends. When a person's service pleases us, we leave a gratuity, usually 10%. 
America 20. A composer of music may add grace notes to the score. In Britain, we greet royalty as your grace. Cambridge graduates may receive grace, exempting them from other studies. Or, an act of grace to pardon a criminal. The converse, he says, to make a person persona non grata is to be void of grace. And grace and mercy are such an integral part of what it means to be a believer. What's so amazing about grace and mercy? Let's think for a moment of the slight difference between grace and mercy. You'll remember the Apostle Paul writing in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, he has to put those strong negatives in because there is something innate in human nature which says, I have to earn this, I have to keep up a good record to get grace. But the truth is, I don't deserve it. And I will never deserve it. Ever. It's all of grace. I can't earn it. And I receive God's grace by saying... God, you sent Jesus to be the Savior. He died in my place. I receive that grace and confess my sins. That's it. That's it. The slight difference, therefore, between grace and mercy. That's grace. But mercy, do you remember the way Jesus put it in what we call the Beatitudes, those beautiful attitudes that were to exemplify disciples? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You find that in Matthew 5, verse 7. They will be shown mercy by God. A loving response, therefore, to the helpless. This is the test. You make it now. Please do. Inwardly. I am gracious because. If that was a question, how would you finish the sentence? I am gracious because I have received mercy. No other reason. Not because I'm a nice person. Not because I've got a great job. Not because I've got degrees after my name. Not because I live in a big house. Not because I've got culture. Not because I've got old money or new money. No. Nothing like that. I am gracious because I've received grace. Now, it's incumbent upon the preacher to say... Conversely, I am ungracious because I haven't received grace. If I am like that, then I've got a lot of repenting to do. And church mustn't get in the way. Grace makes you gracious. Mercy makes you merciful, full of mercy. He's shown you what is good. Do justly. Love mercy. I love it. Somebody said something to me. I'm going to speak to them and say, you know, God forgave me and I'm forgiving you. I am merciful because I've received mercy. I'm merciful because I've received mercy. 
Not because some people I like and some people I don't like. Let's try to conclude this with a few um, uh, applications. Don Carson in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He speaks about mercy and he says, the one who is not merciful inevitably is so unaware of his own state that he thinks he doesn't need any. It's all right for some, but not me. He cannot picture himself ever as being miserable and wretched and sinful. He is not conscious at all of his spiritual bankruptcy. He's all right. He's never grieved about it. And in fact, he would look down on other people who are. And he uses this illustration. He said, it's, it, it, it is sometimes said that no alcoholic who wants to admit that he is an alcoholic, it is sometimes said that an alcoholic who won't admit, who won't admit that he is, dislikes intensely those who do. And equally looks down with disdain and weakness on them when they go to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's for the weak. That's for the needy. I'm all right, even though possibly his or her problem is greater than theirs. And it's possible just like, to be like that spiritually, to actually look down on people. Actually, I'm not impressed with this sermon about mercy at all. This is the macho age. This is the age of me, my and mine. Merciful? That's the point, isn't it? See, what this does, it forces us as Christian people, as disciples of Jesus Christ, to ask ourselves some hard questions. These are the questions we should ask. Am I merciful or am I rather supercilious to the wretched? Am I gentle? or hard-nosed towards the downtrodden? Am I helpful or am I callous and critical towards the backslidden? Someone who was a fine Christian and they've fallen morally and you say, what sort of a Christian is that? Is that what I am like? In other words, am I compassionate toward the fallen? Am I? What am I like? That's mercy. That's mercy. And God is into mercy. Big time. Big time. Let's conclude with a picture. Look in your Luke's Gospel where Jesus paints a picture with irony, I think, when he's in church. He makes an observation. Church is a good place to be. It's in Luke 18 and verse 9. You know, it's, it's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Look at it in this context now. I suggest to you it is a picture of the unmerciful. All right? Here is Jesus in the temple. He's making an observation. And he says this. Now, the introduction is important. Verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness 
and looked down on everybody else, they didn't need mercy. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed, notice, about himself and actually to himself, though he addresses God. God, notice the, 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 uh, the, the pronoun I, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, There's the sinner's prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy. Have mercy. What's the conclusion? Not the conclusion of society as you view church structures and so on and so forth, and sermons, how you would relate, relate to them or value them or otherwise. Jesus says, verse 14, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see it? Mercy in the marketplace. Mercy in the community. Mercy in my home and family. Mercy in the city. A demonstration of God's compassion to all who are in need. This is our square mile. This is where we live and move and have our being. Jenny, do you want someone? Okay. This, this is where we're at. So the mercy of the square mile, do that in terms of our relationships. In the language of Scripture, where we live, move, and have our being. And, and at what point does mercy hit the road? At what point does mercy connect with our relationships? How much have we consciously thought of people, they're a lost cause. How much do we hold resentment against people who have hurt us? Mercy for the poor. And we are poor. And God is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Let's come to him in prayer. Lord, you have shown us what is good. And Lord Jesus, you went about doing good as you were filled with the Holy Spirit. So often our goodness seems to dissipate because of our narrow horizons, our blinkered prejudices. Would you give us a robust, healthy, vigorous goodness and a mercy that will stretch and expand. And we surely know, O oh Lord, what is so amazing about grace. And we are sorry if people have been repulsed by our lack of grace. Whether that is the church community corporately or us individually.
we do pray, Lord, that you will so fill us with your Spirit that the power of Jesus will be known, even if we are unaware of it. And we would like to think, O oh Lord, that even unconsciously that you would speak through us, not only through what we say, but through our lives, how we live, our attitudes, how we engage, so that we are truly part of a healing community. Would you hear our prayers? Bless now our immediate homes and families. We pray for relationships that will be forged for future lifelong partnership. We pray for the injustice that sometimes is so glaring. And we thank you, Lord, for the privileges that we enjoy. Help us not to take all these things or one another for granted. Fill us with mercy. Help us to be merciful. And so hear our prayers now. For Jesus' sake. Amen.